Minim was born in the city of Dhaka in Bangladesh. When she was very young, her mother passed away, and her dad decided it was a good idea to marry off her older sister as a child bride. He himself got remarried and had more children with his new wife. Mimim was sexually abused by her brother and her new stepmother used to torture her on a regular basis. Eventually Mimim decided it was better to live on the street so she left that uh, challenged home and went to live on the street sleeping every night in a cemetery. Sadly, she became a drug addict and was further abused as she lived on the street. She was at the risk of being trafficked into prostitution. Our partners in trust, the organisation I run, uh, found her, our partners in Bangladesh, found women on the streets living in the cemetery and made a friend with her. They brought her into the night shelter and looked after her and cared for her. They then moved her into a safe house that they had established. And Mimim now has new sisters. And because of COVID, she couldn't go to school, but she loves school. She spends her time doing colouring in. She makes puppets with her sisters and enjoys tribal dancing. She's blossoming both physically and emotionally. When she came into the uh, shelter, she was undernourished. She's gained six kilos and is the healthiest girl in there. When we asked her what she wanted to do, she said, I want to be a teacher and I want to help girls like me. Our partners provide a safe environment for girls like Minim. I I don't believe she's come to faith yet, but she's in an environment with Christian people who love and care for her And I think it's just a matter of time before God breaks through in her life. I'm sure she's not far away from the kingdom. This is just one story that I could share with you and will share with you some more this morning from the many projects that Entrust, the foundation I run, is engaged with across the world. Entrust finds and researches and then funds. At the present time, we've got 61 projects, just like this one, with 55 different partners in 14 different countries. And by God's grace, we've been able to keep that going during COVID. Mimim's story is uh, covering the anti-trafficking area that we, uh, that we look after. I had to do a little uh, video for my team uh, and for our website this week. And and I was able to phrase it in a way that just sort of gelled with me. I said, we teach young girls how to get trafficked in order for them to be safe. We do other things as well. We specialise in three other areas. We prevent families and children from getting cholera and typhoid by providing them with clean water and appropriate sanitation. We enable second generation impoverished families to to thrive by providing an education for their children. When poor families send their kids to school and the schools get, uh, the children get educated, the children can then take care of their parents. And when they get married and have families, they've got sufficient income to look after theirs. 
And when you change one child's life by giving them an education, it changes them for generations to come. We're also able to be involved in bringing dignity and hope to hard-working people through economic empowerment projects. We provide microloans for businesses. It might be chickens or goats or pigs or it might be a crop. And when you empower people to take care of themselves, you're giving a hand up, not a hand out. Food runs out pretty quickly if you give a food parcel, but if you teach someone how to uh, rear chickens and produce eggs and sell the eggs, and that enables you to send your children to school, it economically empowers those families. Who is Entrust? We're a group of committed Christians doing a lot, actually, with a little. If you'd like to grab a brochure, there's some out on the table just with ICC stuff as well. So please take this information and use it to educate yourself about what is happening outside of this little bubble I call Melbourne or maybe Australia. Young lady on the front of this brochure, her name is Belle. I've met Belle, I've been to her village, I've stood outside her house. We said, Belle, we want to take a photograph of you with this chicken and she held the chicken like this. And if you look at the photograph carefully, I think the chicken's gasping for breath. <laughs> but Belle uh, and her family uh, are able to get an education, able to be fed well, because we actually provided some chickens, some feeders, some netting to make a chicken coop, some uh, food for them to feed the chickens, some fertilizers, some inoculations. And this family in northern Thailand is thriving because they're selling eggs in the local community and enables the children to go to school. Entrust uh, specialises in identifying and funding community development projects, just like this, but we work with Christian partners. In Australia, you can't get a tax deduction for uh, ministry, but you can get a tax deduction for your donation by giving to a community development project. And when we work with Christian partners, the ministry runs alongside and parallel to it. The money you're giving does not go to ministry. The money you are giving goes to fund the community development and that enables our Christian partners to build trusted relationships with the people on the ground like Minim and like uh, Bell and many others. And because of that, we're able to get 100% of our donors' money to the project, to the village on the ground. We have a, a trust fund which has been left by a businessman and we invest that wisely and the income from that fund pays for all the running costs so that we can maximise the impact of the donors' dollars uh, in the village. People are following Jesus and churches have been started across Africa, India and Asia because of Entrust's footprint. We are not a mission organisation, but guess what? People are coming to faith. We are not a church planting organisation, but guess what? Churches are being planted. We are doing simply what Jesus instructed us to do, to take the good news to the ends of the earth. Now, I know Hanyang's not the ends of the earth, but I have been and visited ICC, and we partnered with ICC for some years, and they do a fantastic job. I've been to the places, I've seen the children, I've seen the love and the care that is given by the ICC team and it's outstanding work and I commend Lyndall and the team and all that goes on there. I have the privilege 
to visit lots of different places, probably more than most. And when the God, when the Bible says to take the good news to the ends of the earth, I've got to say I've been there. I've been to the ends of the earth. I've been to a central, the central part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, right in the centre of Africa, in the middle of nowhere, where the only white fella I saw was when I looked in the mirror where they had a shave every morning. I've been to the ends of the earth because I was up in the northern hill tribes in a country called Laos in Indochina, just south of the Chinese border. I spent overnight in the village, slept on a mattress of some description. I think it was actually just a, 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 a mat. It wasn't a mattress. There was no giving it. <laughs> My back told me there was no giving it in the morning. And and, and I said, um, what's, the, what's the need in this village? And they said they need water and they, they need sanitation. I said, why don't they have toilets? He said, well, if they're scared, if they put in toilets, they'll upset the gods. They'll upset the spirits. And so the health care in that village was terrible. And the poverty was palpable. I've been to the ends of the earth. I've been in a four-wheel drive in northern Thailand, up through the mountains, across a bridge made of three logs of bamboo. Three logs on this side, three logs on that side, major gap in the middle, and we drove this four-wheel drive across this bamboo bridge. On, on the way back, I said, let, let me get out. I'll walk across the bridge so I can video you coming across. <laughs> it's called my mis- risk mitigation strategy. <laughs> I've been up in that village. I've stayed the night in a village up in the hills and the hill tribe areas in northern Thailand where our partners are teaching people to grow coffee and they're providing water for villagers to uh, to drink safe water. I've been to the ends of the earth. I've been in a canoe up the river in the jungle between Thailand and Burma or Myanmar. So you go to a city, you drive in a four-wheel drive along a muddy track, you get in the local boat, long tail they call them, big motor out the back, long boat, and for an hour and a half we went up this river. And on the right-hand side there were little um, huts along with uh, soldiers from Thailand with machine guns sitting in these pillboxes. And on the left-hand side was Burma, and there were people in grass huts with machine guns or guns sitting in there watching each other across the river. And I put a hat on and ducked down because foreigners aren't really meant to be there, but that's another story. (laughs) And up this river for one and a half hours to go to a jungle school where where people were uh, running, fleeing from the Burmese uh, army. And if you look at your news, I got a call on Monday morning from our friend in Yangon, Richard, it's Peter. He said, I just want to let you know, he said, the army's taken over, there's a coup. And I checked my news feed and realised that uh, had just, the story had just broken. But I, I got a call from Pete to tell me, from, from Yangon. Three flights from Melbourne, uh, from here into Singapore, then into Yangon, and then to a place called Sitway in, in, uh, in uh, the western side of Yangon. I was met by a partner who then piled me into a van and we drove for three and a half hours to the end of the road in a little track and there were three motorbikes waiting for us. And I got on the back of a motorbike, we went along this little road for about half an hour till we got to the river when the track ran out. And then they had a boat waiting for us and I got on the boat and we crossed the river in this boat and they let us out on the other side and we walked for half an hour. I'd got to the village, I think I was at the ends of the earth. And we spoke to this village and I said, 
I looked at it and said, this is so poor. There's a little muddy road. There are leaf-roofed houses with bamboo walls, just little tracks and a little bit of farming. And I, and I thought, wow, they've got no school. They need medical help. They've so many things that they need. They need water. And I said to them, what is your need? How can we help you? We sat down with the elders of the village for half a day, actually, through translation. What is your need? And they said, see that, see that um, drain over there? It was just a dry drain running along the edge of the village. They said, see that drain there? They said, we need a bridge over there. <laughs> I looked at it and I thought, what? You could walk across there and get, we can get your feet wet. And I said, tell me why you need a concrete uh, bridge over that drain. Because they said in the wet season, that floods... And last year, two of our children drowned going to school. So as a foreigner, I go into the ends of the earth and see something with my foreign eyes. I got no idea what the local needs are. And we built a concrete bridge over that drain and the kids don't drown going to school now. And they said, what else do you need? They said, we need a concrete path through our village because in the wet season, we put down bags of sand and we can only get from one end of the village to the other by stepping across these bags of sand and carrying our goods and our products. And it's really, really difficult in the wet. So we built this concrete road through the middle of their village and they said it changed our life. It means that trade is easier. It means that communication is better. It means that we can go about our work. It's so much easier. And our partners have built relationships in that village and built trusted relationships in order to share the good news with the people that they are helping. We can't do uh, all that uh, we'd love to do and we only can do what we do because our partners, our local, mainly local partners, know the language, know the culture, have a visa. They don't won't get thrown out of the country. They might get locked up in prison if some of them have, but they are local. And so our job and trust job is to identify those people, work out who are the trusted Christian partners build a trusted relationship with them ourselves, identify how we can best help them to meet their felt need, and then we ask the question, and if we do this, in what way will you be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ at the ends of the earth? I want to read to you a passage from Isaiah. I was reading it in my devotions this week as I was thinking about what I would share with you this morning. And this is a sort of a slightly obscure passage, Isaiah 66 and verse 18 to 21. Let me read that to you. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages and they will come and see my glory. Verse 19, I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. And he details to Tarshish, to the Libyans, the famous archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands, so that they have heard, that they may hear of my fame or see my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels and motorbikes and A300s and all sorts of ways, says the Lord. (laughs) What is this passage actually saying? I want to just break it down into three simple things for us this morning. 
What is God's mission plan? It's actually not that complicated. I spent 18 years as a missionary with Operation Mobilisation. I've spent many years in business and running the Entrust Foundation now. It sort of manages to blend a mix of business, community development, missions, ministry. I'm not sure what I do anymore. I just want to see the kingdom of God grow. That's my passion. Yesterday we spent the whole day um, in a strategic planning session with our board and our senior staff, trying to assess how does the world look in a current COVID and post-COVID situation. What will be the limitations on what we do? What do we have to change in the way we do things to adapt to this new world situation? One thing I can promise you, it will never go back to what it was. I remember late one night, Julie uh, turned on the television and said, Richard, you need to come and see this. And I walked into our lounge as the second plane flew into the World Trade Center. And I was, I said, is, is this a movie or is this a spoof or, or what is this? And it was live television as this plane flew into the World Trade Center and the tower collapsed. And I remember turning to Julie, I said, you know what? I said, the world will never be the same from this point on. And in, in, in uh, last year, I, I, uh, I travel a bit. I was in 52 flights in 2019. I cut down last year. I only did six. Um, and that, that was before the middle of February. And uh, I got back from uh, from Laos, actually. I've been up in Laos and Myanmar. And I got back and my board member, my board chairman said, Richard, you're going to have to self-quarantine for two weeks at home. I said, what? Excuse me? I said, I asked the people in Laos if they ever heard of COVID. They said, no, there's no COVID here. <laughs> the reason was they weren't testing anybody. And I said to Julie, I said, you know what? I said, this COVID thing, whatever it is and however it will pan out, the world will never be the same from this time forward. And I'm not a prophet, I don't think. <laughs> um, but that, that's a reality that we all have to live with. What is God's mission plan? It's really simple. It's going to all the world and preaching the good news. Yes, it is. But I've, I've just, out of this passage in, in Isaiah 66, put it down to three things. Gather the lost. Verse 18. Gather the lost. I'll read that bit to you again. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages. And they will come and see my glory. So there's a reason for gathering the lost. There's a reason for going to the ends of the earth. There's a reason for doing what ICC does in China, for doing what Entrust does in Africa, in India and Asia. We want to gather the lost. Identify those who have not heard or seen the glory of the Lord and make him known. Jesus addressed the felt needs of his day. He healed the sick. He preached. He helped them uh, by giving simple illustrations about farming and, and local things that they could understand. He contextualized his message to suit the culture in which he lived. Evangelist Billy Graham, all of you I'm sure will know of him. In his day, mass rallies and the MCG was the way to communicate with the people of the day. Incredibly effective. I bump into people all the time. Oh, I became a Christian through Billy Graham at the MCG or Sydney Cricket Ground or wherever he went. If I roll the clock forward another few years, what about the Alpha course? 
I'm sure you all know of the Alpha Course. Credibly used by God to be relevant in the the era in which we live. And church growth in developing countries, churches are growing in developing countries and sadly churches are shrinking in Western countries. How do we effectively share the good news in the culture in which we live in Australia and how do we use that influence to, to challenge others in other countries to share the gospel in a culturally relevant way for them? Gathering the lost, allowing others to be exposed to the gospel in a culturally relevant way. That's why I love what we do and the model we have with community development. So you're, you're doing it in deed and then you get to share the gospel because you're doing it in relationship. So it's word and deed. If you just do good stuff and you don't share the good news, you're missing out on the most important thing. And if you just go in there and stand with your Bible on the street corner and preach, and you don't help the people at their point of need, then we're not showing and demonstrating the gospel in our actions. I've done a fair bit of stuff in my life. Um, I remember standing on the Howara Bridge, which crosses the Hooghly River. Was it the Hooghly Bridge on the Howara River? I can never remember. In Calcutta, in India. And we'd been living on a ship called the Logos. And they said, right, today's your evangelism day. We're going out to evangelize these people in Calcutta. I thought, oh, that's good. Let's do that. And they gave us piles of tracks. And there was, uh, there was Hindi on the top and, and, and Bengali on the bottom of the stack. They said, we want you to stand on this bridge and we want you to give out tracks and you'll be sharing the gospel with people. And in the early 80s, people were hungry for literature in India. They would fight each other to grab any bit of paper with some print on it to read a message. And I put a rubber thumb on my finger. I didn't want to lick it all the time, but rubber thumb. And I'd say, um, uh, Bengali or Hindu, Bengali or Hindu. And they'd say, Hindu, Hindu. And I'd give it off the top. And if it was uh, Bengali, I'd flick one off the bottom of the pile. And, and I jammed myself in the corner because there was just a mass of people moving across this bridge. They estimate one million people walk across that bridge every day. So in the 80s, that seemed like a relevant way to share the gospel. What happened to those tracks? What happened to the message? I've got no idea. God knows. And that was culturally appropriate for the time. I wouldn't do that in India now. It's just irrelevant. And it's it's wrong to be able to do that. And I'd probably get chucked out of the country, to be honest, if I tried to do that. Gather the lost. Use culturally relevant techniques in the place and in the culture in which we operate. Second thing is to deepen their faith. <coughs> Excuse me. The verse in, uh, in Isaiah talks about seeing God's glory. And when we come to faith and we understand who God is and the salvation we've received, we want to go deeper. And when we go deeper, we see what it is to know the glory of the Lord, to see how amazing he is, to see what a privilege it is to have the chance to serve him. So we want to deepen our faith. We want to, when we really understand the impact of the cross we've been singing about this morning, the old rugged cross, as we think about the empty tomb and we think about God's coming judgment, as we deepen our faith, it should deepen our desire to want to make that good news known to other people who haven't yet heard. Fellow in the mid 1800s called John Mott, and he met a, a guy you've probably heard of called J.K. Studd. 
And they attended a conference and the speaker was a fellow called Dwight L. Moody, an evangelist in the US. And as a result of those three people being in the same position in the mid-1800s, 100 people volunteered their lives to give for missionary service. And they said, how terrible it is that there are people around in our day who have not yet had the chance to hear the good news. Nearly 200 years later, we're in a position where some things have changed, but there's still a huge task to be done. So gathering the lost, deepening our faith, should result in recognising the third thing, that we are all sent. We are all sent. If we say we are Christian, if we say we love Jesus, if we understand the reality of our salvation, then the, 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 the reality is that we're all sent to share the good news, to be part of God's mission. And I know that sometimes in, in our Western culture, we, we have this pecking order. If someone's, you know, the, uh, a missionary, they, we, we put them on a pedestal, and if they're a pastor of a church, they're up there, and if they're leading the youth group, well, they're just down a little bit. And, and if they lead communion, well, they must be a good guy, because he led communion. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> but, but, but we tend to put people on this pecking order. I don't think God sees it like that. If you know me and you love me and you want to serve me, you'll make me known wherever I have placed you. Whether it's you know in your school, uh, in, in your place of work, in your business, um, not everyone can actually do what ICC does. And I have to say that not everyone can do or is able to do what entrust and what I have pr- been privileged to do. Understanding that we are sent is primary. The location as to where we go is secondary. We're told to be salt and light in the places where God has put us. Not to be want to be salt and light uh, on the other ends of the earth, therefore I can't go there, therefore I'm not going to be salt and light. I mentioned this contextualised approach. We need to be culturally sensitive. This friend, he's a fantastic guy. He's, he was a Buddhist monk and he became a Christian. And he's one of our partners uh, and he's got his doctorate in theology and he teaches at a Bible college and he does water projects which we fund. And the Buddhist, uh, in the Buddhist culture, they love, they love festivals. And so he said, let's have a festival around Christmas time. This is not tax deductible by the way, and it is ministry and we do fund it. He said, let's have a festival around Christmas time. In Buddhist culture, you go to a village and you have a celebration and you offer a meal and you give them a gift and then you get a chance to give them a message. We have to do it the other way around because if you feed them and you give them a gift, they'll run away. They won't hear the message. So he said, we get a, gather a, a village of Buddhist people together and we give them a message. We tell them about uh, what it means, what, Christ, uh, what Christmas means and who Jesus is. And then we give them a gift and then we feed them and, and trust and, and our partners fund that. Uh, 1,200 people that we know about have come to faith is a direct result of that little Christmas outreach. Churches have been planted as a result of that little outreach. Uh, well, he, he gives them this message and says, if you want to know more, just talk to us and we'll send back some friends and they can tell you a little more during the year. Well, they send back church planting teams and they teach the Bible to them. I said, how do you do it? What, what's the contextual approach that you take with Buddhists? Oh, he says, it's really easy, Richard. He said, all we do is we teach them to become better Buddhists. I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, he said, the best way to lead a Buddhist to Christ is teach them to become better Buddhists. He said, it's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? 
I said, how does it work? Well, he said, most people are nominal and they really don't understand the heart of, of Buddhism. So he said, what we do is we teach them what Buddhism is about and we teach them to become better Buddhists. And when they realise what Buddhism is about, they realize, we can never reach that standard. And then we tell them about Jesus so they just become Christians. Fantastic. It seems, it seems like the wrong way around. Some people think it's easy to cross the street, uh, easy to cross the world and to cross the street to share the gospel. At Christmas time we, um, we have neighbours. I sent round invitations, Julie and I sent round invitations to all the neighbours. We're having Christmas drinks and nibbles in our place. Just come. And I don't know, six or eight neighbours turned up and we got to know them and we tried to build relationship with them. And just to get to know them, no other agenda, just to be friendly. And uh, one day, and, and now we see them in the street. Hi, Richard, how are you going? They stop in the supermarket, and there's a guy behind the mask the other day. And he, g'day, Richard. I'm going, do I know you? <laughs> I'm sorry, you'll have to help me out. Oh, we came to your pl- I came to your place for Christmas drinks, and I'm, I'm, I live in the apartments next door to you. Oh, right, sorry, Pete. I didn't recognise you behind the mask. So it's simply building relationship. And I'm actually passionate about building relationships. In fact, I wrote a book. Uh, um, called Real Relationships. And it was just published a couple of weeks ago, just finished a couple of weeks ago. It's a book written for business people. It's a book written for sub-35, sub-40-year-olds who know how to send a text but don't know how to build a relationship. And I've got some stories about entrust in it, and if you're interested, talk to me afterwards. Um, but, but that book, uh, the idea of that book was to help people how to build relationship. And, and if you don't know how to build relationship... Uh, I'm not trying to sell the book, but you'll find it helpful. Um, and so I'm passionate about relationships. And the only way that we can do what we do offshore is because we build trusted relationships with the on-the-ground partners in the places where we work. And out of that relationship grows trust and accountability and connection. And, uh, and we, can, we can develop that and, and share the gospel as a result of that. I was travelling from uh, Mozambique uh, a couple of years ago uh, and I was going to fly to Harare in Zimbabwe. I was with my colleague and uh, we got to the airport and all you could hear was the crickets chirping. They'd cancelled the flight and forgotten to tell us. Long story short, an eight-hour taxi ride to the border. We got there as it was dark. We then had to walk across the border in the no-man's land between Mozambique and Zimbabwe in the middle of the night with our wheelie suitcase keeping looking left and right to see if someone was going to jump out of the bushes and mug us because we're in neither country, we're in no man's land. And then we got to the other side and we had no idea how we are going to get from this border town to a place called Mutari, which is about 20 kilometres away. And this guy, who was quite well spoken in the immigration queue, said, oh, how do you get into Mutari? I said, we've got no idea. He said, oh, I've got a car, I'll be happy to take you. And we, he seemed nice enough and, and seemed safe enough, so we said, thank you so much. I'll just go and get the car. So he swings around and pulls up. He's got his wife and two kids in the cabin of a ute. And, and, and it was just a ute. Get in <laughs> the back. <laughs> I had just a shirt on. I was frozen. I'm sitting there like this shivering for 20 kilometres in the back of this ute as we drove to the town of Mutari. Our part, and we've actually got partners in Mutari in Zimbabwe. Uh, and they are beekeepers. And we've started a beekeeping program with our partners there. Children, the young, young guys are, are trained in carpentry, so they've built 60 beehives. 20 local people have been trained how to keep bees. 
And, uh, and so far, last year, they produced three tons of honey from this area, and the honey provides an income for the farmers. Gladys is 70, and she's always tried to earn her living by farming. But she's now been trained as a beekeeper, and she said she receives a really good income from those bees. She said food handouts don't last very long. And it gives them dignity, and it gives them hope when they can self uh, feed themselves. Gladys told us that in Africa, a lack of knowledge is death. A lack of knowledge equals death. The amazing thing about this little bee project is it's run by a guy who trained at Moore Theological College in Sydney, African, worked under the Anglican Church. I met him in a church at Kirribilli, church by the bridge in Kirribilli in Sydney. And I met him there and we formed a relationship and a partnership and he said, I'm going back to Africa. I said, how can we help you? He said, I want to start beekeeping. I said, let us fund that for you. And, and the beekeeping is important in itself, but the beekeeping is funding church planters in that part of, of Western Zimbabwe. Isaiah 66:19. I will send some of those who survive to the nations and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen of my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. Not everyone can go to the ends of the earth. All of us have the opportunity and the capacity to do what we can with what God has given us. One of my favourite topics is generosity. And generosity for my sister-in-law is giving $40 a month to, uh, to fund a project within trust. Generosity is from a family that I deal with who give $300,000 a year to our projects. And they say, you know, we can't do what you do, Richard. We'll give you the money and you can be our arms and legs and feet in the places that we can't manage. Could you help us and can we partner with you to do that? And I want to invite you as I finish this morning to partner, to pray, to encourage, to give generously. I'm not asking for money for Entrust. Give it to ICC. But what I am asking you is to pray about what you should do with your money, what you should do with your talent, to make an effort to cross the street and get to know your neighbour, to offer to uh, to offer relationship, to help people in your workplace, not with the agenda of preaching at them, but with the agenda of building a trusted relationship so that they will ask you, what is it about you that's different? And then you get a chance to share your faith out of relationship. Please uh, support, encourage, continue in your mission endeavour. There's a lot of church, there's not a lot of churches like you that have such a strong mission focus. I was so encouraged when I saw the numbers to know that your mission giving had increased, not decreased, during COVID. Brothers and sisters, the need is greater today than it was last year and it was the year before. And God is inviting us to partner with him and to join with him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for Minim. I thank you for Gladys. I thank you for each of the partners. I thank you for ICC. I thank you for Montmorency Community Church. And Lord, you've called all of us to uh, gather the lost. You've called all of us to deepen our faith and you've called all of us to be sent and to be salt and light in the place where you planted us in a culturally relevant way for the times, the difficult times in which we live. 
And Father, I pray for this church, I pray for each one, that you will touch our hearts, touch my heart, keep us focused on you, and help us to understand that the outworking of our faith results in generosity to share the good news with those that have never had the chance to hear. We thank you for the challenge this morning, and we ask that you'll lead us and guide us and uh, and uh, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.